the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all. This is Matt Kane meets on Virgin Radio Pride, and today I am meeting Paul Burston. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure to be here. <laughs> It's interesting, you know, because I first came across you, or your work, rather, with your first books. And you were very much kind of hot young thing. You were published a huge buzz and acclaim. But what I didn't realise at the time was that already by then you'd been through a lot and achieved a lot. And it's only actually by... Um, following you on social media, particularly when you were writing your memoir and going back over previous episodes from your life, that I realised just how much you'd achieved. And I want to talk about it all. <laughs> I want to talk about it all today. How but... many hours have we got? <laughs> I know. In one hour. Is that possible? <laughs> but let's start by going back to the beginning. So you were born, if I'm right, in 1965... Brought up in Bridgend in South Wales. Teenage suicide capital of the world. It was weird, that, wasn't it? Yeah. There was some whole kind of epidemic. Yeah. To somebody who's never been to Bridgend, that paints quite a dark, bleak picture. So the question for you is, I mean, before it became notorious for the series of teenage suicides, what was it like to grow well, up there, then? Well, the irony is, is that it's actually a lot better in many ways now than it was when I was growing up there in the sense that people are more open-minded um, there are out gay people there um, when I was there it wasn't like that but what, what what's happened is that it, economically it's become more deprived like a lot of those towns so yeah. the town centre feels like a ghost town now There's half the shops are boarded up there's a sort of out-of-town big shopping centre where everyone goes instead. It's like Bolton, where I'm from. Yeah, so it's like, well, it's like, like many of those towns, the centre of the town has lost its sort of heart and soul. But when I was growing up there, it, was, it felt like a place where I couldn't be myself. And at school, everything was, it was, everything was oriented around rugby and sport and that very kind of working-class macho culture to the nth degree because of being Welsh as well. You have that kind of Welsh thing on top of it. And despite the fact that we had, you know, these Welsh icons of camp like Shirley Bassey and to some extent Tom Jones, who I think is quite camp in his own way, there weren't many reference points for me. And so I felt very, very isolated. I felt very suicidal as a teenager and did actually seriously consider committing suicide when I was 14 and planned it all and everything and lost my bottle at the last minute. And then one night I was watching Top of the Pops with my parents, as you did in those days, because everybody watched the same television shows. And mm. this character called David Bowie was on singing a song called Boys Keep Swinging. And I was absolutely gobsmacked because in the video for Boys Keep Swinging, if people haven't seen it, Bowie sings the, the main vocal in a sort of swaggering male style, dressed in a suit and really kind of like really acting like an alpha male and in the background there were these three female backing singers who were singing the, the backing tracks and when you cut to them they're each him in drag oh. and then in, at the end of the video each of them walks down the down the catwalk and pulls off the, the wig and smears the lipstick which was something that he copied from a trans woman that he was dating called Romy Haag in Berlin that year or the year before this is 79 and I saw that video and sort of blushed bright red with recognition 
Um, I remember that. When your mum and dad are in the room, you, you feel that they get what's going on in your head. Well, I mean, we'd, I'd already had that when I was a lot younger. When I was nine, the Naked Civil Servant was shown on television and my mum was a nurse and she was working night shift. And I watched it with my stepdad, who was a lovely, lovely man, just don't get me wrong, but at the time, this is very much, you know, speaking of the time, this is 1975, early 75, and the Naked Civil Servant was on and I watched it with him and at the end he turned to me and said, your mother's worried you might be like that. And I was mortified because I I knew I was already at nine, but I didn't want to be that. I was terrified of becoming what Quentin Crisp represented in that show. Yeah. It was terrifying to me. So can we just so if we rewind from the moment when you saw David Bowie and that David Bowie and that changed everything, um, why didn't you want? So it was very macho culture. But what was it that made you think made you feel so terrified about turning into what Chris, Quentin Crisp represented? What kind of things did people say about gay people? And oh, I mean, the, I mean, the image that you one had of gay people in in the early seventies was if. If you, were, if you were a young person living outside of London and living in an isolated town, there was no visibility. So I didn't know there was such a thing as gay pride. I mean, that had just been invented in 1971 or 72. The only image one had of, of gay people was that they were criminal or borderline criminal, that they were perverts, they were linked with paedophiles, they were unhappy and miserable. There was never an image of someone being gay and happy about it or... Well, there was just nothing. There was, I mean, I mean, that the fact that we have now have gay characters and soap operas and you know Hollyoaks and teenagers and stuff like that, and ho- that Heartstopper, which I watched and loved and cried. I mean, if that had been around when I was a kid, it would have been so different. But there was none of that. It was an absolute wilderness. There was nothing. So I saw Quentin Crisp, who represented this very, very exaggerated. Um, version of a homosexual, a feminine homosexual, but it wasn't the fact that he was a feminine um, that, that alarmed me particularly because I'm not bothered by that. It was the fact that he was victimised and that he portrayed himself and he considered himself to be a victim because I never wanted to be considered a victim. That really, really rankled me, and I never understood why that was until much later in life when I did some therapy and got to the to the bottom of where that came from as a child. But I was bullied a lot at school. I was being called Puff and Bender from the time I was about seven. And I was bullied a lot. And when I reached the age of 14 and was considering killing myself, it was because I was being bullied so much. And I didn't want to tell my parents because I was afraid they'd reject me. Mm. Because my parents would make casual homophobic jokes in front of me watching the television because it was it was normal then. It was, oh, absolutely. It was completely normal to make homophobic jokes about puffs and pansies on television all the time. I, I have to say, with I had exactly the same experience. I didn't think I'd be thrown out of home, but I thought they'd just either stop loving me or love me less. It's difficult to describe to people who weren't there, but the resistance to who we were was so universal and so kind of extreme and so everywhere. It was everywhere. There were two gay-themed moments that, that dominated the year that I was nine turning ten. One was Quentin Crisp's Naked Civil Servant showing on television, and the other one was the Jeremy Thorpe case. Uh So you basically had an effeminate homosexual who is bullied and beaten and brutalised for his entire life for daring to be who he is, and then you had Norman Scott, bless him, who was, you know, made into this absolute sort of figure of horror and figure of fun in the tabloids and, and... treated appallingly. And for anybody listening who doesn't know about that case, it was adapted into a very English scandal, wasn't it? By Russell T Davis, yes. Jeremy Thorpe, who was the leader of the Liberals party at the time, who was married, had this secret relationship with this male model called Norman Scott. And 
in the end tried to get him killed. And because Norman, the shame was so yeah, and Norman bless him. Um, I mean, I I actually interviewed Norman recently because his memoir just came out, and I did a, a, an event with him at Waterstones, and he's an absolutely wonderful man. I mean, for somebody who lived through so much, he was vilified by the newspapers. I mean, I, I remember sitting at sitting at the breakfast table and my stepfather reading those stories aloud, you know, at breakfast, and it just reinforced to me that this was something I did not want to be. There's yeah, no yeah. way I wanted to be this because I was nine and life was hard enough already <laughs> um, so you knew you had to get out I knew I had to get out and then when I saw Bowie and discovered Bowie when I was 14 there were two things one was that he represented queerness in the broader sense because there was a huge debate around David Bowie's sexuality he was gay he was bisexual he kept changing his mind and making different statements um, but he was I, I, I think he was bisexual and most interviews that he gave he confirmed that he was bisexual but he was the first person that made being not straight or being queer or whatever you want to call it, not just something that was okay, but something that was something to aspire to. He made it seem really cool to be queer. Long before cool to be queer became a phrase. You'd think that was a surface thing. The the it would be have a superficial impact. But I can remember in the early nineties when I started going out and having been um grown up being bullied and all the rest of it, exactly the same as you. I can remember when the gay village in Manchester, in my case, started to take off and straight people started to go and it suddenly became cool. Yeah. That Madonna film, In Bed With Madonna, with all yeah. those gay dancers. The fact that it was cool, it's not just a superficial thing. No, it made course, you, absolutely Some not. of us think um, it's not something to hide away and be ashamed of. Well, and the, and the, th- the thing about, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I discovered Bowie when I was 14, so he was, this was in 79, you know, in some ways, his glory days, his his huge days were sort of behind him, the kind of Ziggy Stardust era. That was sort of seven years earlier. So I, I, became, I became a back fan and I was sort of mm. styling myself after Ziggy Stardust about eight years too late. I went to see him in concert for the first time in 1983, the Serious Moonlight tour, the Let's Dance tour. And I was dressed like Ziggy Stardust and he was on stage wearing his suit with his scrambled egg hairdo and I was <laughs> I felt betrayed, you know. Like many queer fans of David Bowie felt betrayed at that period of his of his career. But seriously, it really did feel like a lifeline. It made me feel like A, it was cool to be queer, and B, there was a life beyond the small town life that I knew, because he also represented that, which is why many people who weren't gay or queer or bi or anything Lots and lots of straight people who grew up in small towns and suburban um, parts of the country related to him because he represented something which is you don't need to be this person that you were born as. You can reinvent yourself as somebody else. That's what Bowie was all about. That was his big message. Even David Bowie was an invention. His name was David Jones. And the fact that he kept reinventing himself during his career and being different versions of David Bowie was also something that gave great sucker to someone like me because it meant oh I don't need to be this I can be I can be that or I can be that or I can be the other and that was something became very ingrained in me from a very young age and I knew I was artistic and creative and I always wrote things I always painted but writing in particular and coming from a working class background I never believed for a second that I would ever be able to make a career or a job out of that I thought I'd end up teaching or something but I knew that I had to get away from South Wales and education would be the way out. OK, right. Pause right there because I want to talk to you about getting away from South Wales, getting out and, and fulfilling all these dreams. But we're just going to take a little break. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride.
This is Matt Kane meets on Virgin Radio Pride, and today I am meeting Paul Burston. Paul, we've just been talking about growing up in South Wales, knowing you needed to get out. So, with all those emotions behind you, when you did get out and you came to London to go to university, I think you studied English and drama. Did you encounter a completely different world, the kind of world you dreamed of, the kind of world? Bowie had hinted about. I did. I mean, I should say that I came. I actually came to, to university to study English and religious studies because I was an obs- I was obsessed with religious studies at, at, at A level, um, and drama was just my third subject for the first year. But when I got to the co- to the college, which was called Saint Mary's, there's a clue in the name. I suddenly <laughs> discovered that it was a Catholic college, and actually they weren't going to teach religious studies the way I've been taught. They were going to actually indoctrinate me. So I have to change course. And the only course that ran parallel was drama. So I made drama and English my major. And I did RE just for one year and then dropped it. Um, but the college, having escaped this sort of town that was full of, you know, as we call them, rugger buggers, I arrived at this college where the two biggest departments were drama and sports science. So basically, <laughs> I encountered the exact same people that I just escaped. <laughs> um, but there was another crowd, presumably, in the drama there department. There was another crowd in the, in the drama department. And I met my first out gay people that I'd ever met in my life. So what was that like? Did you embrace them or were you oh, a bit God, resistant yeah. at first? Oh, no, I, I just grabbed them. I just leapt onto them and be, I became friends with people. Although before I actually did do that, I have to say, before I'd actually um, met another gay person, I came out to a straight friend, a woman called Tracy Hope, and I think the name is really important. And she's from Yorkshire, where I was born. And this she, is at university? This is at university. She was a year older than me. And... I was. I had a sort of platonic crush on her because she looked like Meryl Streep in The French Lieutenant's Woman, <laughs> and we, I took her back back home for for the half term holiday to Wales. And my mum and stepdad kept referring to her as my girlfriend, and I kept correcting them. And then one day we went to this beach called Southern Down, which is a place that I have a lot of a lot of emotional attachment to, and it was very cold and there was icicles all on the cliffs. And she just turned to me and said, "Paul, are you gay?" And I said, "No, yes." maybe, and then cried. And that was the first person I came out to. So when I went back to college, she said, maybe you should go and speak to your personal tutor, who was this wonderful man called Jared Boynton, who I'm still friends with. And I went to see Jared and told him, and he said, how do you know? And I said, well, I just know. And he said, have you done anything about it? And I said, no. And he said, well, maybe you should. So I looked up a copy of Time Out magazine and um, discovered that there was this well, I just, I knew, I'd heard of this club called Heaven because Frankie goes to Hollywood's Relax video had been filmed there. So I knew there was this gay club in London called Heaven, but I didn't know where it was. Anyway, I found it in Time Out. It was quite difficult to get information in those it days, was. wasn't it? Yeah, there was. Before there was, the internet. There was no way of finding stuff. And Time Out was, was the London Bible yes, there. Yes, absolutely. So this is 1980, early 1985, and I found out where Heaven was. And I went along on my own, got the train into Waterloo, walked over Charing Cross Bridge and stood outside heaven for about an hour watching all these Castro clones queuing up to go in. And there's me with like spiky hair and earrings and no eyebrows, (laughs) feeling these are not my people. I cannot go into this nightclub. And I was so intimidated by everyone. So I didn't go in. I just thought it was like... Oh, no, I I thought there was going to be a different ending to this. Well, there there is, but it took me about three more goes. It took me about three more... I went back about two more... On two more occasions, I think. And then eventually I I got the courage to, to go in. And I remember going down that staircase I actually opened my memoir with this because it was such a pivotal moment in my life I remember descending that staircase and thinking it was so glamorous 
And then as I, I'm paying to go in, and then as I walked in, this guy swept past me and sort of sang very loudly, so many men, so little time. This was a big dance song yeah, at the yeah, time. Yeah. And of course, how prophetic those words turned out to be, you know. Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I love talking to gay men in particular over a certain age about the first time they they discovered the gay scene because it's interesting hearing you talking now. It's difficult to convey the extent of the fear. Um, we were excited, we were drawn to it, but um, the fear as well. It was very frightening because I, you know, when as a teenager despite the fact that I was being bullied, I did have my little, small, little tribe. I had a couple of friends who were freaks like me. Yeah. They were actually straight, um, but yeah, they were yeah. freaks. They were goths and they were Bowie freaks and all the rest of it. And when I got to college, I, I, I didn't... It took me a while to find those people. And when I went to heaven the first time, it, it, was, it was older men, it was men who were, you know, looked, looked rather like I do now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I didn't really sort of feel like they were my tribe. Um, but I discovered very soon that there were... Uh, midweek nights at heaven which were the alternative nights and they were the oh. nights where they played the music that I that I loved so I used to go to a club called Pyramid on a Wednesday and that, they were kind of precursors to Ducky and Pop Stars and those clubs that came along in the 90s and they used to play David Bowie and Prince and The Cult and then some dance music but it was a whole mishmash of stuff and that became my I used to go there all the time. I loved that. So coming from Bridgend and having very little exposure or no exposure to positive representations of gay people, what was it like to be in a big club, as we know heaven is, surrounded by people just like you? It's easy to see why so many gay men of our age went a bit berserk. I did go berserk. I went completely berserk. It was like I'd spent my my teenage years repressing my sexuality. I did I did have girlfriends and I did have sex on several occasions with women. But I knew I knew that it wasn't what I wanted. But I'd never ever had any experience with a boy apart from somebody who kissed me at a party as a dare and he freaked me out because I was really excited by it. But I'd never actually had I'd never had any sort of consensual, you know, furtive thing with a boy or anything. So the first time I got taken home by somebody from heaven, I had no idea what to expect or what to do. And basically, I think I was raped looking back. I mean, it was it was it was pretty brutal. And um, I was lied to. I mean, I thought he was my boyfriend and we were we started seeing each other. And then I just I discovered quite soon into the relationship that actually I was just a bit on the side and that he had a long term boyfriend who was away on business. These stories are so common, aren't they, amongst yeah. gay men of our age? Because we didn't respect ourselves and and we didn't respect each other often, yeah. not always. And we just had no idea about sexual relations and romantic relations. We well, just I, well I, I, had no idea. I had no idea how to negotiate it. I mean, I, I remember being at Heaven, I think it was probably my second time I'd actually gone to the club and actually gone in. And I remember standing at this bar and seeing this guy that was really cute. I was very into kind of like... Um, I wasn't really into people that looked like me. I was into the kind of all-American boy look, which was very popular then. And there was this guy with a flat top and a kind of baseball jacket. And he came over to me and, without saying a word, put his hand down the front of my trousers 
and then withdrew it and then just walked away. <laughs> and I thought that was perfectly normal. I thought that was how gay men greeted each other. I didn't think that was remotely... I didn't well, consider that what, a, sexual, a sexual assault, which it was. Yeah, but that's what other people said about us, that we were perverts, we couldn't yeah. restrain our sexual urges and that we were filth. Yeah. So we believed it about ourselves and each other, didn't we? I think so. And I, I think, I think you know, the thought that somebody would do that to you and that, that, that you had any say over it didn't even enter my head. It just felt like, well, this is, you know... I obviously didn't pass a muster and he left and he walked away. Um, Can I just say, there's so much I want to tell you, I want to ask you about, so much I want to ask you about, but I'm going to have to move the story on or else we're not going to get time to cover it. You've talked about Time Out and it being the, the listings magazine for London. And when you left university and became a journalist, you eventually became the lesbian and gay editor of Time Out, which is, first of all, an amazing appointment, which I want to talk to you about. But now that we're talking about the scene, you must then have been the king of the scene and on the scene all the time yeah. and saying you went a bit berserk which doesn't surprise me at all well of course because you know journalists aren't you know paid the, aren't paid the biggest wages and it was a part-time position it was three days a week so it was pro rata but of course you do get lots and lots and lots of freebies which mainly involve alcohol so I would go out to the launch of an, you know, the opening of an envelope, and I'd be there, you know, ligging the free drinks. It's like um, literally what I was like yeah. when I first came to London. So, so my 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 drinking, which had always been slightly problematic since I was thirteen, um, spiraled out of control, and I was drinking an awful lot. I drank a lot during my sort of late twenties and early thirties, in particular, and. Time Out was a great place to work back then. At the beginning, and I, I was appointed in ninety. Two or the beginning of '93, sorry, and it was a very, very lively magazine. It was the cool London listings magazine everywhere, and and the, the way that it was run, you know, people would come, people would come into work and they would work for several hours, and they'd go out for long boozy lunches and come back at like four o'clock and continue working while drunk. I mean, that was quite common to see that. Um, it's so difficult to keep your own drinking and stuff under control yeah, when you're around that. It was because it was a very drinking culture, and not just drinking. There was other things going on as well, and. And it was it was great fun, but the thing is, is that I'd come to it via activism. So my sort of journey from into journalism was from being an activist because I'd been I'd been an AIDS activist first, and that kind of drove me. Okay, right. Pause right there because I want to ask you all okay. about that. But let's just have a little music break. Matt Cain meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Matt Cain Meets on Virgin Radio Pride and today I am meeting the brilliant Paul Burston. Paul, you were just telling me about how you came into your very successful career as a gay journalist through your activism. And I'm glad you did because I really wanted to ask you about the work you did with ACT UP, in particular the AIDS activism. Could you start by telling us, um, people, some listeners might not know about ACT UP, what exactly it did, what kinds of activism it did and how you got involved? Well, ACT UP began in New York. It was it was founded by a whole load of people, but Larry Kramer is the name, the name most commonly associated with it. And it was a direct action group. And ACT UP stood for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. In America, the fight was mean, mainly about getting access to drugs. By the time ACT UP launched in the UK, which was in February 1989, the battle here was more to do with tackling stigma and discrimination. And I, I, I had not been directly affected by the AIDS crisis until about 88. I can remember in about 85 hearing about it 
because my boyfriend at the time said we needed to start using condoms and I was like really freaked out like what why what's going on and it wasn't something that actually came close to home until my very good friend Vaughan who I shared a flat with who's my, my second gay flat share after leaving college um, who was somebody I admired greatly and looked up to he was diagnosed positive and he became ill very very quickly which was quite common in those days because there was there were so few effective treatments and when he got ill i could feel myself i could feel myself spiraling i i, I knew i knew i was going to go on a bender and i thought i need to do something constructive here because if i don't i'm going to self destruct because a i was terrified that if if he could get it, then I could get it because his life compared to mine, I mean, Vaughan was practically a nun compared to me. And it was a death sentence. And it was, and it, it was literally a death sentence. There was no, there was no effective treatment. I mean, there are people still around now who who were diagnosed back then, but they are the exception. Most people who got ill then died. When you've grown up thinking your sexuality is dirty, and then suddenly you're finding out it can lead to disease and death. Yeah, and bearing in mind, I came out when I was 19, and this is, I was 23 now. I had, I had four years of, of, well, it wasn't even uncomplicated, but I had, four, I had four years of sexual liberation, shall we say, where I made the most of it, and I made up for lost time, and I, sh- I slept around a fair bit. But suddenly, this, this thing happened, and I became convinced, like many of us did, that I must be infected, or, I'm, or maybe I was infected, what would happen to me? I did want to get tested because I, I couldn't see the point because it was just, they couldn't treat you, they couldn't give you any any, any decent medication. So I realised I needed to do something constructive and I saw, I opened up a copy of, of a free newspaper called Capital Gay and I saw an advert saying that people were meeting at the London Lesbian and Gay Centre in Cowcross Street to start up a London branch of ACT UP based on the New York model. So I went along to this meeting and threw myself into it and it became my life for the next two to three years. I just, I got, I really threw myself into it. I've seen the pictures of you lying yeah. in the streets and chained to railings and yeah. all the rest of it. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people in ACT UP were people who were either affected by HIV like me, they were people who were themselves positive or had AIDS. There were lots of women, which is often ignored, lots of lesbians who were very much fighting those battles with us, as well as donating blood. And a lot of people that were involved couldn't risk arrest because they had either jobs or mm. families that... You could that, still that, be fired that, from that, your that job in those days, that. couldn't you? Absolutely. But I didn't care. I was unemployed. I was, I was doing casual work and I was unemployed most of the time. I was claiming benefits and doing little side jobs. And I, and I didn't care about being arrested. I was happy to get arrested. So there was a group of us, I think it was about 12... Um, in the in what was called the action group, there were different groups within actor that did different things, and I was in the action group, and we used to be the people that would get arrested, and I got arrested many, many, many times. <laughs> do you think now? I mean, it's great we're having this conversation because do you think younger queer people have any sense of the sacrifices you had to make and how brave you guys had to be for to create the world we're in now? I think some some do. I think to be fair. Um, we weren't aware at the time. I didn't consider myself at the time to be brave. I'd always thought of myself as being a coward. I was the boy who was bullied. I was the boy who never fought back. I was the boy who just, you know, didn't do anything physical or, or didn't risk anything. I was, I was always coy and nervous and and scared. And suddenly, I was forced into a corner. So I, had, I either died or I came out fighting so I had to come out fighting I was like I was like a cornered animal I felt like a cornered animal literally and ACT UP was my way of 
giving voice to that anger and that grief. And it became a very, very powerful... The buzz from it was amazing. I, lo I loved it. I loved ACT UP. It was very, very sad. It, I mean, my life was, was... Because of meeting the people I met through ACT UP as well, my life became a, an endless series of funerals. I mean, I was either on, on demos or in a, in a police cell facing a, a, a court case or going to a funeral for about two, three years. That was my life for three years. And I lost a lot of people in a very short space of time. And something very, very damaging happens when you lose a lot of people in a short space of time, which is you don't grieve properly. Yeah. I can remember being at a funeral and grieving and realising that I was crying for somebody else, not the person that we were burying that day, but somebody who died two weeks previously, and feeling guilty about it. I remember feeling really guilty that I was grieving for Vaughan and not Jared. And actually, that, there's no reason why I should feel guilty because that, that, that is not normal to be in that situation oh, when you're 23 years of age. It's not normal. It's like, it's like living through a war. It was, we were living through a war, but the wider community wasn't. Just, it yeah, was just yeah. us. So there was yeah. this real strange sense of you were living through something but it wasn't being acknowledged by the wider community and the wider world. And the, the newspapers and the media, especially the newspapers were not just ignoring it, they were actively stoking hatred towards people like us. I can tell when you're talking you're getting fired up. When you say the activism led to the journalism, is that do you mean your motivation as a journalist was to make a difference and yes. to fight for the cause? Yes, definitely. And one of the things that frustrated me when I was inactive, I was in, the, I was in what was called the Media Liaison Committee. Part of my job was, was, was sort of press liaison, and I used to get so frustrated that even within the gay press... Act Up got a lot of bad press by the the AIDS establishment, the more you know, the Town Higgins Trust, and the kind of you know the sort of the respectable side of of AIDS of AIDS activism. What gave rise to Stonewall when Peter Tatchell's outrage was doing it, something similar? Precisely, it was like that. It was like they were they were they were the kind of the good suited gays, and then they were the kind of bad gays who wore leather jackets and and all the rest of it, and and, and went on demos. And, and, and you were a bad law. gay, and I was a bad gay breaking the law. <laughs> so when I when I used to read, we we did all these things, and then I was so devoted to it. I remember leaving meetings sometimes in tears because I was so heartbroken that we were doing all this work, and it was being misrepresented, and we were being maligned. And so I thought, well. I need to own the narrative. I need to become a journalist and actually write the pieces myself. So I started submitting ideas for articles to the gay news press at the time. The idea of submitting it to the mainstream press at the time would have been oh, out would of never the question. Have occurred, never have occurred to me. I mean, this is, this is 1989, 1990. It would never have occurred to me that the mainstream press would have taken anything. I did write, I did write something for a magazine called City Limits that was um, a rival to Time Out, where I actually had my first job before Time Out in the end. And it was about a trans woman, friend of mine, called Christine Clark, who made a, doc a documentary called Sex Change Shock Horror Probe that was a very ahead of its time. It was a, it was a programme about trans identities, which was back then called transsexual or yeah, sex change. Yeah, yeah. And it was about looking at what those gender identities said about the community as a whole. And I sold a story about that to City Limits and to Capital Gay. And then I started writing lots of columns for City Limits and Capital Gay and then for Time Out. But both my my first two staff positions at City Limits, where I became what was called... It was a similar to the gay section. It was called Out in the City. That job and my first job at Time Out as gay editor both came my way because the people that were doing them both died of AIDS. 
So my career was elevated very rapidly because the, the, the gay men before me both died of AIDS and that hung really heavy on me. I mean, I remember being sitting at my desk in City Limits and hearing that Brian had died and just falling apart. And I felt guilt and shame about it, that it was that I was somehow benefiting from someone else's tragedy. And it was similar with, with, with Time Out because Michael, who was the guy before me, died of AIDS. And the job was advertised and I went for, the, for that job and got it. But it, again, it, it hung on me that for a long time. Okay, there's lots I want to ask you about, including how some of these intense emotions you're talking about motivated you to write fiction, to channel a lot of that. You already said you were creative when you were growing up. So I want to talk about the books, but before we do, we'll just have a little break. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. This is Matt Kane Meets, and today I am meeting Paul Burston. Paul, you've been telling me about your experiences as a gay activist and gay journalist. So you obviously had this incredible insight into our world, our community. When things started, we've talked about how it became cool. When suddenly there was this mainstream interest, um, you worked with that and you started writing very mainstream fiction about contemporary gay life. And that, I said right at the beginning, that's how I first discovered your work. I completely loved it. Um, you know, I still do love your books. Um, but that was a big moment, wasn't it? And it was, it felt like it was, I remember reading your first book, Shameless, it felt like a revelation. I'd never read anything like that. Oh, well, that's lovely to hear because at the time, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'd, I'd written some non-fiction books before. I'd written an academic book or co-edited an academic book called Queer Romance. And I'd published a few other non-fiction books. And I was published by Little Brown at the time. And my editor at the time, Andrew Willey, suggested I write a novel next. It was at the time of Bridget Jones. It was around the time of, of all of those inverted commas chiclet and they always had the gay best friend yeah. who had no sex life or love life of their own but was there to dispense fashion advice and a shoulder to cry on and it used to drive me mad I used to hate those characters so much so I decided okay I will write a novel because um, Andrew suggested a gay Bridget Jones that was how it was pitched to me and I decided no I will write this and I will reverse all the expectations so I had Martin who was my central character who was basically Bridget Jones who's <laughs> basically a, you know a, a 30 something desperately looking for love and it's the straight female sidekick who is the wild one and Caroline was the kind of tribute to you know most of my friends all my life have always been women the ones who stuck up for us in the playground it was always the loud yeah. slightly wild sexually confident yeah they were they were always they were always my allies it was it were always the girls and even when I came out and was on the gay scene most of my close friendships were with women lesbian women or straight women and I decided that I wanted to sort of pay homage to them as well. So Caroline was based on, she was based on several people that I knew at the time, as indeed was Martin. And I was writing about the world that I was living and the world that I was observing. What I didn't realise, because I wasn't self-aware enough, was that the Shameless is a kind of morality tale. You know, there's a, I won't spoil it, but there's, you know... This, this lifestyle that Martin is leading escalates and escalates and escalates out of control and things happen and there are consequences for that. And I wasn't aware at the time that I was really writing about myself 
on some level and that at some point I was going to face consequences too because my lifestyle was getting really out of control at that time. So what were the consequences you faced? Because as well as discovering the gay scene and going a bit berserk, as you said, and all these intense emotions, which often are overwhelming when you've grown up somewhere like Bridgend, suddenly you're getting a lot of attention and you're celebrated on the cover of magazines as being this hot gay author. Yeah, absolutely, which was wonderful and I loved all of that and I and I, I, I was very, very fame hungry and very into all of that but I was also somebody who who'd, who'd survived a lot of trauma um, both as a child but also more recently as an AIDS activist because I'd seen a lot of people die and I'd, I'd been to lots of funerals and suddenly in the in the sort of early to mid 90s when my career took off there were lots and lots of drugs around and I just went for everything I just I just did everything I mean, I, I think there's, you know, ecstasy became huge in the gay scene in sort of early to mid 90s. I don't think that's an accident. I think that a community that has just gone through this period of huge amounts of grief and loss is suddenly offered this drug that makes you high on a happy vibe. And it takes all that it makes you feel joyful, it makes you feel uninhibited, it makes you feel happy. I really went for that. And my drug use became a problem. And several people told me that it was becoming a problem and I ignored them. I just thought I, I knew better. So how did it come to a head? I ended up nearly dying. I, I overdosed and I ended up waking up in a hospital, um, which was a bit, bit of a wake-up call, <laughs> to, be, to be brutally frank. Yeah. And was that... I mean, some I, I know gay men who've had rock-bottom experiences but then stuck at it and had a few rock-bottoms. Was that the moment when you bounced out of the right rock I, bottom I, and I would, I, would, I would love to say that I came out of hospital and just cleaned up my act I didn't I came out of hospital and um, toned down my act and it took me about another year two years to really change things but then what I did of course was that once I stopped taking drugs I just then reverted back to being an alcoholic so I just went back to drinking more and more booze and you know that's that's a much more recent um issue that I've dealt with. I've been, I've been sober now for coming up to, to a year and a half and, and it's been the best thing I ever did. But I think because of my Bowie obsession, which had been a sort of constant throughout my life, um, I didn't sort of see the warning, which of course is that Bowie nearly died through drugs and cleaned up his act. I just saw it as being part of being cool because David Bowie did coke and it was like a really cool drug. And coke is a really pernicious drug. I remember my sister, I've got a sister I'm very close to who's a lot younger than me, from my mum's second marriage um, so there's a 12 year age gap and she was visiting me for the weekend and we were having dinner and she said to me you don't need to do this Paul you're interesting you're interesting without doing this why are you doing this and it I really stayed to me I, I felt I feel upset now actually because she was so um, she was so sad for me she was worried for me for my welfare and so I started keeping things from her and we'd always been really close you know I started editing editing what I told her because I didn't want her to worry it's interesting that you're talking about this so kind of readily. You mentioned earlier that you have a memoir coming out. It's not till next year. We can be heroes. Obviously, David Bowie is going to be a presence in it. We can tell from the title. Is the reason you're speaking about this so readily and you've so obviously kind of worked it all out, is that because you've been going over it all while writing the memoir? It's partly because of the memoir and it's partly because I had therapy. I, I started therapy about five years ago to deal with stuff that happened when I was a child. And during the course of that year, I discovered things about myself that I didn't know. And I also discovered lots of things I didn't really like and I wanted to change. And 
when the pandemic arrived, I was supposed to be starting on a new novel because I'd, I'd, I'd just published a novel the year before. It was 2019 I published The Closer I Get. Which I loved. And then 2020 I was meant to be writing the next novel and when the pandemic came, I just couldn't write fiction. I just, I don't know, for some reason my head could not create worlds. I couldn't um, sustain them. And my agent suggested that maybe I should think about writing the memoir that I'd discussed with him a few times. And I wrote the memoir instead. And even though I'd been through therapy and thought that I'd unpacked just about everything, when I did the memoir, it's a funny thing with memories. You have There are memories that you know that you have, but when you start writing about them, they'll trigger other memories that you didn't realise you had. Your brain stores things away in different ways. And there were some things that came up that I hadn't realised and there were patterns that emerged. And the pattern that emerged that was the strongest was how during my life, from a very young age, I had been self-medicating in different yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. And that was the thing that really came across to me really strongly. That's why I decided to stop drinking. So all this happened around the same time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when, when I was writing, I wrote the memoir in... 2020 into 2021 and then I decided no I, I need to stop drinking and when can listeners look forward to being able to read your memoir it comes out in June 2023 next year but I'm before that I'm starting a podcast called we can be heroes and on the podcast I have a different guest each week and they discuss their heroes, who that what what they mean to them and what they've learned from them. So it's a way of kind of tapping into some of the themes in my memoir, but other people's stories, not mine. Fantastic. Paul, thank you very much for telling me your story. Thank you for being so open. We'll lo really look forward to the memoir. It's been a pleasure. Right, that's about it for this week. Thanks very much to my guest, Paul Burston. Drop me a line on social media if you've enjoyed the show or you have something to say. We're on at Virgin Radio UK and I am on at Matt Cain Writer. And please do use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. Matt Cain Meets will be back next week on Virgin Radio Pride. The Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney+. Plus. Full of stories and love for all. 